Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkable educators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Bob Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Until 2009, everyone in holistic education knew Ron Miller lived as the center of the resurgence that started in the late 60s and carries through to this day. And everyone, including yours truly, was enlivened and enriched by his work and presence. He started journals, wrote book after book, including the seminal What Are Schools For? He mentored many of us to help bring our work to the public. He became so well-known that he was invited to speak in Turkey, England, Mexico, Canada, and at conferences around the United States. As he had been retired for seven years, I wondered about the staying power of his work. When I attended the 2017 Holistic Education and Teaching Conference, I found that educators from Asia and Europe, as well as North America, referred again and again to his insights and, unprovoked, to Ron himself as an inspiration for their commitment. I had a close personal relationship with Ron and was delighted when he agreed to do this podcast, his first public comments on holistic education in seven years. I am sure you will enjoy listening to this educator, philosopher, historian, and holistic education pioneer. Ron Miller has been an educational scholar and activist, teacher, publisher, and bookseller, community leader, and philanthropist. Originally trained as a Montessori educator, he received a PhD from Boston University in American Studies, focusing on the cultural and historical foundations of education. His research led to several books, including What Are Schools For?, Holistic Education in American Culture, Free Schools, Free People, Education and Democracy After the 1960s, and essay collections including Caring for New Life, Creating Learning Communities, and The Self-Organizing Revolution, among others. Ron founded the journal Holistic Education Review in 1988 and helped organize conferences to build a movement for holistic education. He later published the magazine, Paths of Learning, and edited Education Revolution for the Alternative Education Resource Organization. Ron was on the education program faculty at Goddard College and has also taught at Champlain College. He helped establish the Bellwether School near Burlington, Vermont. Since 2014, he has run a lifelong learning program in Woodstock, Vermont, where he teaches American history and other topics. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Bob. It's been uh, really great to reconnect with you. It's been a lot of years. I know, and I was thinking of the first times that we met. Do you have any recollection of that? Because for some reason, it's emblazoned in my memory. Oh, no, I don't remember the very first time. I think it was, um, do you remember a woman named Elizabeth at the Peninsula Free School uh, outside of San Francisco? Oh, yes. 
and it was some sort of tea in the East Bay uh, for her or for the school. And I don't even recall how Josette and I were invited, but we were there and I was kind of down in the dumps because we had spent all this time writing and editing with New Society Publishers, our first book. And then for personal reasons, the editor at New Society had to drop out and I was feeling, oh, why am I doing this? And it kind of was felt like a grind to me. And I met you and... Had you heard of me before that? No, I don't think so. Anyway, for some reason, we were attracted to each other, and I started to tell you, and you said, oh, no, don't be ridiculous, and you gave me all this encouragement, and it kind of knocked me out. And I went home with Josette, and I said, what, did he just say that? And she said, yeah, I heard it too, and that actually kept us in the field and kept us working. So I feel a lot of gratitude, and, of course, we've had many other wonderful experiences over time. Yeah, we have. We've we've had some good times together. Well, I, I'm glad that I did have that effect on you because you and Josette went on to do really terrific work uh, for many years. Uh, and uh, in, encouraging colleagues was always an important part of uh, of my work. So I'm, I'm glad it worked out. It really did. And so tell me, if you would, a little bit about yourself in the sense of you did encourage so many of us, and do you know what about it? What happens in you? Why is that so important to you? Why was it important to encourage people? Yeah, I mean, I know other people who kind of do their work and just don't really spend their time or concerns with what other people are doing in the field. But you always went out of your way to encourage, to promote conferences. You, I know you ran uh, early websites and different opportunities that you're always giving people new opportunities. So that's that seems like a part of yourself that I don't think very often happens, that not many of us do. So can you tell us any more about that? Well, my work in this field always felt like a calling, uh, like a, a mission uh, that I was given. Uh, from the time that I was in graduate school, uh, learning about educational alternatives and coming upon the the, the concept of, of holistic education, I realized this was something I, I had to uh, plunge into really deeply, uh, and and it was very lonely. I th- I didn't find uh, anyone else in the academic world uh, working on this. There there was very little literature. Um, and, and so it was part of my uh, work to find colleagues, find people who were thinking along the same lines and, uh, and say, hey, let's, let's get together. Let's build a movement out of this because uh, these are really important ideas and they've, they've got some answers for the, the dilemmas of our time. Uh, and so I think that was the most gratifying part of, of doing this work was finding people uh, like you and, and many others who, who were discovering this way of thinking and applying it in so many ways. And what do you mean by a calling? I don't mean to be intrusive here, but it's so interesting because as I talk to all the others in our field and I go back into myself, I know what a calling means to me. And I'm just wondering, do you, is there any, what, what does a calling mean to you? Well, I, I can't define it exactly. Uh, I don't know where it comes from. Uh, all I can say is that I, I grew up in a very conventional uh, upper middle class family in the suburbs. 
uh, and I could have had a very comfortable life as a, I don't know, an accountant or a lawyer or something. <laughs> and <laughs> Somehow I can't see you there, Ron. <laughs> Actually, I do have uh, some fantasies now about, about going to law school and be, being a constitutional law scholar, but... I think I'm a little old for that. Oh, that's a little that's a little bit different. Okay, I get that. I actually have that fantasy at times too, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, but but the reason I didn't do that when I was in college and and graduate school is um, I I just had this uh, this yearning to to find out uh, why why are things falling apart? Why is there so much violence in the world? Why is there so much unnecessary suffering. Uh, and I really wanted to know. I wanted to figure that out. And um, uh, I went down many paths to, to, uh, to try to find answers. And I, f I found myself going toward, uh, first, uh, the field of humanistic psychology, uh, the work of, of Rogers and Maslow and, and others. Uh, and that led me into humanistic and, and then holistic education. Um, and I, I can't really explain why it was so compelling to me, but it, it pulled me out of whatever conventional ways of thinking and conventional uh, attitudes, conventional politics that, that I had grown up with, and something was telling me, no, this is a better way to go. This, this will lead to a better world if we can get people to, to recognize this. And I felt, all right, I'm, I'm going to do my part. This is what I have to do. It's amazing, isn't it? It's there's no it's it's not a choice situation. We we see it, it it calls and that's what we have to do and I think that's one of the beauties of it is that the choices are over. However, then it leads to the actuality of it. Tell me a little bit about those early days. I mean, you describe them as lonely and what was that like? Well, um I mean graduate school can be lonely uh anytime because you're you're immersed in this uh, the, the research, uh, buried in libraries. Well, back in the old days, it was libraries. I guess today you just go online. But um, um, I was coming across these ideas and, and this this uh, literature that uh, very few other scholars were looking at, uh, um, and I. I you know, made me wonder: Am I crazy, or am I am I just really out to lunch here? Because I'm I'm finding this interesting. Why don't uh, other uh, serious scholars find this interesting? And in fact, uh, uh, when I wrote my uh, dissertation, uh, I submitted it to my uh, advisor and my second reader, and they they didn't like what I was doing. Uh, they said this is not. Uh, Academically, uh, well, they didn't use the word kosher, but that's that's what they meant. You know, it's not it's it's not <laughs> sure. uh, within a recognized field. Uh, you're not using a literature that's that's academically sound. We need you to to go off in this other direction. Um, wow. and, and and I so I was I was alone. I really had no uh, support for for what I was uh, exploring at that point. Well, when you started to reach out, I mean, you obviously started to find some people. Was it because you had published? I know you've written many books and all many of much inspiration in them. But was it the books that attracted uh, a bigger community to you? Or did you actually find people, even at that early stage, who, who were agreeing with you? 
uh, I started going out and finding them. So um, the the research uh, showed me the the range of alternative movements. So I I was already. Uh, uh, connected with the Montessori world because I had been trained as a Montessori teacher, uh, but I, I started to learn about the Waldorf movement and the homeschooling movement and uh, uh, various other uh, approaches. And so part of my uh, dissertation research um, was was field study, and I, I would take trips to uh, various parts of the country and visit schools or or visit... Uh, individuals who who had written an article somewhere or um, who had come across one way or another, uh, and I started building up this uh, this f- small network of of like-minded people. Um, and so, as I began to reach the end of my uh, uh, my my scholarly work, and I and I had to decide, well, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to Join a faculty somewhere and, and be a, a professor, and and again this I, this calling uh, seemed to be pulling me in another direction and said no you, you I've got to be an activist I've got to go out there and help build this movement, and the uh, the way to do that was to start a journal, uh, start a new uh, publication that would uh, collect the the writings uh, of these people that I was meeting. And so, in 1988, uh, I launched Holistic Education Review, and um, once that got out in the, into the world, uh, more uh, people started coming, uh, uh, you know, to find me. They, sure. they came across the journal and they said, "Oh, I'd like to write for this also." Wow, it's such pioneering work. So, as it grew, were you surprised? Um, because it seemed to me, and uh, let's see, I guess we met, uh, it had to be in the late 80s or early 90s, right? Would you say that? Well, if um, we some- met in the East Bay at that at that event, uh, I was living out there from, from 91 to 92. Right, that you were living out there. I do, I do remember that. All right, so that's when we would have met. Uh, I started uh, the journal in 88, and I, I edited it for four years, uh, and I, um, I stepped back in 90, uh, after 91 when I moved out to California. So I guess I, uh, we didn't have any contact while, uh, during the time I was the editor. Right, that's for sure. So wh- were you surprised because it seemed to really grow pretty quickly? Or was that just my perception since I was excited and becoming part of it and was meeting all these wonderful people? Yeah, I think it, it has more to do with, uh, with your excitement <laughs> and, and also... Um, <laughs> Um, it is it is a problem for me how excited <laughs> I get, isn't it? I think you've seen that over the years too. <laughs> Uh, but no, when you're when you're uh, with a small group of enthusiasts, uh, you, you tend to think that, um, uh, that you're the whole world, or, or you're a big piece of the world, and, and it never really was. Uh, so the journal, I, I think, at one point maybe reached two thousand subscribers, um, which you know, starting from scratch and and starting from w- with ideas that most people had never heard about, I, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, for uh, sure, especially you know, in the pre-social media I don't, I don't look back and, re- and regret doing it, uh, but really, it was just a blip. I mean, it was uh, it, it was it never had a, an impact 
on the education profession as a whole or on the on the academic world. I, I remember uh, I joined the Educational Press Association, uh, and I thought uh, these are my my colleagues in in educational publishing, and I'm going to uh, make some good contacts here. And I was in the room with with people from. Um, uh, from these magazines, these professional magazines that were going out to 600,000 teachers, uh, or, or the publisher of Highlights for Children w was in this group, and you know what's their circulation? Several million, right? And so I, here I am sitting with these guys, and oh yeah, well we have 2,000 readers, uh, <laughs> and I I realized that uh, no, this is a this is a, a tiny uh, subculture that that I'm speaking for or that I'm giving voice to. And uh, yeah, we've got to start somewhere. Um, but I, I was, I was humbled very early on. It was not a, a major undertaking. But then it grew, um, and say, like by the middle '90s or even later into the '90s, there was a lot going on. I mean, I know that you worked with Phil, Phil Gang, and others on Gate and and many other projects, and all, and it did seem you know, that people were reaching out into their own and developing their own constituencies. We had several thousand constituents at one point and that sort of thing. So what about that aspect of the spread? Well, I guess you could look at it, at a, the glass being half full or half empty. Uh, uh, yes, we built something there that, that had value for a lot of people. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, and yet, from the point of view of, of truly shifting the culture, uh, truly changing the dialogue about uh, educational policy and practice, uh, we did not, at least not yet, uh, uh, I, I never felt we ha ever had a great impact there. And um, I finally left the field uh, around 2009 uh, because I, I, I just felt I, I had given it everything I could and it was still such a tiny uh, uh, impact on on the whole culture. Uh, I just I didn't have the energy to continue anymore. Sure. Well, I mean, I I I experienced the same thing in many ways, and now I notice that almost everyone is trying to talk about positive development. And when Josette and I started, nobody talked about it, or very few people talked about it. It was always about therapies and and responding to what's wrong or trying to see this pathologies and nobody was really saying hey what does really well-being look like and while i can't say oh well we were the influence of that is certainly the conversation at least has changed somewhat and now that i'm doing these podcasts and i'm on these i'm being directed by cleo onto these various social media networks and and different uh, connecting opportunities out there, there's a lot of interest in how do I bring some of these practices into my classroom or how do I stop and look back at my relationship? And you see a lot of relationship-based comments out there and a lot of comments about connecting to children as the basis of uh, a, a, you know of a decent education. And while that's a long way from the depths and the uh, understanding that perhaps you and I share, nevertheless, that's a pretty significant switch, wouldn't you say? Yes. I can't uh, deny all the good things that have changed. Uh, just a, a few weeks ago, the, uh, 
the new superintendent of the public schools uh, here in my small Vermont town uh, uh, heard about me and asked me to come in and and, and talk with her. Um, and they've got all kinds of ideas about personalized learning and 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 learning out in the community and doing all these great things. Um, so, yeah, that's a milestone. That that's something that uh, that wasn't happening 30 years ago. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This teaching story is called Idiot. It was an auspicious time of the year, and the wise fool was expected to give a party for all the important people in the local area. The mayor was to be there, all the important business people, and all the celebrities were jammed into his house. Well, during the party, he noticed that the hors d'oeuvres were on one side of the room and the china was on another side. Oh no, he said. And so the wise fool went over and picked up a giant stack of china and started to go across the crowded room. On his way, someone bumped into him and all the china flew up into the air. Well, as you might expect, a hush fell over the audience. Everyone looked up, and the china came crashing down to the floor. Crash, 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 crash. And everyone was aghast and looked at the wise fool. And he turned to them and he said, What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen an idiot before? Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. So, uh, so when you look at the uh, when when you look back, what relationships um, were particularly meaningful to you as you were able to stick to it for twenty one years, which is a significant amount of time? Which relationships, like which uh, yeah, which colleagues, which individuals? Yeah, people or ideas or what influenced you outside of your own studies? That would be hard to to single a few out. Um, I would say e- events that I that I was invited to or, or participated in uh, w- w- kept you know kept the enthusiasm going. So so we called this conference of of people who associated with holistic education. We call uh, we held it in Chicago in 1990 uh, or outside of Chicago, and um, uh, I don't know remember now maybe 80 or 90 people were there, but. Uh, uh, just tremendously interesting and dedicated people. Uh, that was an exciting event. Um, a few years later, there was um, uh, an educator in Guadalajara, Mexico, 
uh, Ramon. Ramon. Ramon's still at it, you know. In fact, I'm going to get in touch with him to see if he'll do a podcast with me. That's great. That would be wonderful. Well, one of my great memories in this work was was being at one of his conferences in Mexico, and we were in this huge ballroom uh, in a hotel with, I don't know how many hundred Mexican educators, and um, at each table, they were discussing uh, the Chicago principles of holistic education, the, the, the document that we wrote at that, at that 1990 conference um, in Spanish. Like, hundreds of people were poring over this document that, that a group of colleagues and, and I had written. Uh, so that was, a, that was an exciting moment. Um, a few mm -hmm. years after that, I was invited uh, to Istanbul in Turkey to a, a conference on educational alternatives, and that, that was a mind-blowing experience. Uh, so, so events like that um, uh, kept me going. They, they, they really showed me that people in other parts of the world uh, were discovering these ideas and, and treating them seriously. Yeah, that is. Thank you for that. And um, Yoshi uh, has is a very vibrant. I met a bunch of people there uh, recently uh, at a conference recently. A uh, whole uh, Pacific Rim, the Asian Pacific Rim holistic education movement, and right. Yoshi is centering it, and it's in about five or seven different countries there. Yeah, they've done great work out there, and I know Jack Miller uh, from Oise, who, who you have also interviewed. Uh, has had a lot to do with, with bringing holistic ideas uh, to Asia. Yeah. So, Ron, while all this was going on, I mean, I know I have found it personally challenging at times uh, in the sense that people have, uh, you know, dismissed, dismissed our work, uh, even been kind of crude or rude to us personally, or um, certain things we've tried haven't gone that well, or certain other things were super successful for a while and then not so successful. In other words, it's kind of a roller coaster and a lot of personal challenges to persevere. What kinds of personal challenges did you face? The hardest one and, and the one that finally did me in uh, was, was just um, uh, my own idealism, uh, my own expectations. That's so my own, interesting. Well, my my what own expectations of of how of what success would look like. Uh, you know, if my journal had reached fifty thousand people instead of two thousand, or or if my books sold fifty thousand copies, or or could actually be found in bookstores. Uh, <laughs> you know that that's kind of what I expected, um, and and being much uh, more marginal than that. Uh, in the culture, uh, even though, as we've said, it, it was a contribution. It, it did start something. Uh, it wasn't enough for my own um, idealistic um, needs. <laughs> so, so that's uh, yeah, that was my my biggest adversary. Well, that's that's really well stated. I know for me, it's really I have the uh, intimate support of Josette and Albie and Amber and a few others and. I know that they've picked it up when I also have uh, tripped and had difficulty because of the challenges uh, of bringing this forward. Pioneering is a hard thing to do. Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind uh, here, uh, and you know, I am trained as a historian. That's uh, that's how I got into this work. Um, but you you look at the. 
the historical phase that that our culture was in in the eight, in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, that that was the Reagan era. That was uh, Reagan appointed this commission, which came out with with their report, "A Nation at Risk," in 1983. Um, so at the exact same time, we were coming across these exciting ideas that that pointed toward the future. The the mainstream of our culture, the the government, the corporations, the the big foundations, the education profession, they were all looking to the past. They they were all trying to to shore up uh, an educational system based on industrial age uh, models and processes, and they had much more power, much more influence than than we ever did. Uh, so. Um, it's it's not just blaming ourselves for being idealistic. It's we were living at a time when our ideals were not uh, widely appreciated, uh, and that that was hard. If we had done this work in the 1960s, uh, it would be different. Uh, that's where you've got uh, uh, books uh, that now are pretty much forgotten. Uh, but Summer Hill by A. S. Neal. Uh, uh, the Lives of Children by George Dennison. Uh, these books were read by thousands and thousands of people. They were uh, uh, they were very influential because the culture at that at that time was ripe for it. Uh, we came along at, at a time when the the trans transformational energies of the '60s and, and early '70s were were starting to peter out. Yeah, I, I'm just pretty cynical about government in the sense I, they look like they're always last to the party to me on anything meaningful like that. I guess I resolved in myself as to say, okay, teacher or parent, you have the child. Nobody's here between you and that child. So you can bring forth a holistic relationship. And maybe that's my idealism or maybe it's my defense, but that's where I resorted in the face of the larger scale uh, ignorance and being ignored by them, for sure. Yes, yeah, for sure. And th that reminds me of a, a quotation I heard along the way. I, I don't remember now who said it. I think it was some theater producer or director. It was, um, uh, in a time of corruption, to nurture is a revolutionary act. Yes. <laughs> I've often felt that way. It sounds like you have as well. Yes. But um, I, I always uh, eventually wanted to change the whole culture of corruption. And uh, that, uh, as we know, or as we, as we see around us today, that's not exactly uh, been happening. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I still hang in there as the little tagline on the last school that we ran. It was changing the world one little baby step at a time. Yeah. And I mean, even that now sounds sounds a bit empty to me. Well, but we we do what we can, and we. But the thing is, since we're called, we're called, and like I said earlier, the decision making's over. You're called, you do it until you're done doing it. Yeah, I agree. All right, so I know that you became a professor of history at the University of Vermont for a while. No, no, not quite. Oh, I didn't have that right. No, when I, uh, so my most uh, successful academic work was at Goddard College uh, because it's, it's a, 
it's really a countercultural place, and the education program there was very much uh, oriented toward progressive and holistic education. Uh, so when I was on the faculty there from the mid-90s until uh, something like 2004, uh, I had a great time. Uh, I had great colleagues, great students. Uh, it was really good work. Um, I left there, just felt like the right time to move on. And then a few years later, uh, I thought, gee, it would be fun to to teach at a more conventional college uh, and, and and to teach in fields that I was interested in but had not had a chance to develop. Uh, so um, I was at a small school that's actually about two blocks away from the University of Vermont. It's called Champlain College, uh, but it wasn't part of the university. It's a, a small private college. And I, I did teach American history and current events and, and uh um, things like that uh, there for a couple of years. Did you enjoy that? Um, I mostly did, yes. It got harder because they, for the first couple of years, I was able to develop my own courses. And I, I was teaching things I was very enthusiastic about. And then they um, uh, pulled together a, a much more, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say scripted, but it was a, a prescribed curriculum for these courses that I had to follow. And um, I, I did a pretty good job with it, but it, it was just wasn't the same. Wasn't that exciting? No, not no, it, might, it didn't involve as much uh, creativity and, and spontaneity. Um, I guess you could say it wasn't uh, holistic education anymore. It was, uh, it, was, it was getting pretty conventional. So do you miss anything about being involved uh, in the holistic education, uh, I guess, movement right now? Well, I, I miss it in the sense that, it, it they, as I said, there were wonderful people, wonderful events. Uh, it, it really was a, a good way to spend a, a, that part of my life. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, it would be nice to, to still be doing that. Um, but I don't have a sense of longing or, or loss that, that, oh, gee, I, uh, I, I'm separated from my true my true calling, I, I need to get back to it. I, I don't feel that. Uh, I feel like I, I completed um, that phase of my life, and, and I've, I'm reasonably content uh, with what I've done since then. Great. And what have you been doing since then? Well, after, uh, after teaching at, at Champlain College, I moved to uh, this small town of Woodstock, Vermont. Uh, I bought a bookstore and ran that for a few years. Um, and which was great for getting to know people in the community. Um, it was not uh, financially uh, viable, so I, I ended up closing it down. Uh, but I got very involved in the community here, and so I, I was uh, running a literary festival. Uh, I'm on the board of, of, of several local organizations, uh, and and mostly uh, my work is is still in education, but it's um, it's an adult learning program. Uh, totally informal. There's no no grades or um, assigned readings or anything. But uh, mostly retired people come to these classes on on history or literature or or uh, music, various various topics, um, and we have a great time together. That's that's that sounds really enjoyable. And I, I did you whisper to me once that you're thinking of running for a, a state office there? Oh, so uh, two years ago, 2016, I ran for uh, the state legislature. Uh, I ran as to be the representative from here. 
um, and uh, didn't quite make it. I got forty three percent of the vote, uh, but I lost to that, someone that, who. That's that's a nice percentage. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, Totally annihilated, uh, but the the guy who beat me uh, had lived in this community much longer. Uh, sent his kids to school here. Everybody knows him, um, so he. I, I probably would have voted for him myself, <laughs> but um, uh, but it was it was quite an experience. Uh, I, I don't think I'll do it again. I don't think I'm I'm a politician at heart, uh, but it 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 uh, was very educational. Ron, I have uh, a lot of contact now through this podcast and through other things that I do. And there's a lot of young people, uh, young educators now, and even people beginning their, um, their educational uh, college work, you know, to become teachers. And there's a lot of interest in, it has different names. Uh, holistic education is not the most popular, although it is well known, but relationship-based education and there's a I think what would you recommend to them in other words more in terms of their personage because in many ways as we've seen in this podcast there's it's still very much a pioneering effort that mainstream education is a tremendous cultural uh, weight that's going to take a lot to overcome but there's a lot of young people who want to become educators and parents, by the way, who want to bring a different understanding of, of parenting based on more holistic understanding. What would you recommend to them in terms of both you know, getting involved, but more deeply staying involved, giving, given some of the challenges that you faced and I faced as we've, uh, you know, in our lives, in our career? Well, if, if they can... Uh uh, keep their eyes on the prize uh, uh, and, and be content with with small victories uh, in a way that that I wasn't myself. Uh, I think that would help uh, j- just to recognize that that they are surrounded by a culture that is hostile uh, to these ideas, but that, as you said before, um, uh, there is space within families or within within small schools, within communities. Um, there is space to uh, to work against the dominant culture uh, without without it even noticing. You know, they're they're not going to bother you. Um, uh, so to to claim those spaces and to keep at that work and and not worry about uh, whether it's causing a revolution to take place next week. Yes, that's thank you for that. Um, I know one of the probably the fastest growing of them all is homeschooling. Does that surprise you? Oh no, that's been uh, that's been the case all along. It, it, homeschooling started to take off uh, in the eighties uh, and nineties. Yeah, it's grown so much, and the uh, unschooling movement also is very popular right now. I I, I support people homeschooling. I I think it's a, a great. Uh, declaration of, of independence from from the culture, uh, but in my writings uh, and and when I spoke about this, I, I always um, was concerned about about the our society f- uh, fragmenting and and becoming atomized. You know, if all we do is retreat into our private spaces, uh, then then where does our democracy go? Where where does our our common uh, endeavor? Uh, go, um, 
for generations we said that public schools are the only place where that can happen. Uh, and we're, we're in this confusing time now where we're saying, uh, well, public schools are, are a very imperfect way of, of building community, um, but we need something else. We can't just uh, uh, flee from these public institutions and, and, and have nothing. So that's the challenge, I think, is how do we, how do we keep a, a democratic common vision uh, even as we take care of our own kids and our own families uh, and own people who are like us, you know, people who, who, uh, who agree with us or look like us, uh, right? We, we don't, we, we would lose a lot if, if that's all we had. Well, and exacerbating the situation, which it, to me is that the only way there's success in the large cultural sense is as a special interest group. Um, no, you know, they're in our special interest group, whatever it might be, gay rights, whatever it might be, then we're going to mobilize our special interest group and then we'll try to reach out to others. So it seems like the, it's almost built into the cultural fabric that an atomization, is that a word? <laughs> I'm making it up. An <laughs> yeah. atomization has to take place uh, to create a special interest group, which then gains enough power or enough adherence, you know, in the sense that everybody knows someone now who's homeschooled. So it's not, uh, you know, out there anymore. And I'm not a big fan of what I'm saying and just noticing that in the culture, it seems like you have to go back to a special interest group first build the strength from there, and then reach out to others. Uh, yes, that that does appear to be how, how it, it works most of the time. And, uh, right, and it's probably- very difficult. It's very difficult then in terms of education because the uh, public school's funding is so tied to government. Yeah. If you were going to recommend one of the books that you've written— for people to read as a way to get a good, solid understanding of holistic education, which included also how they might go about bringing it into their lives. Which one of your books would you recommend? Well, they're all out of print, so I don't know that it's a good idea to recommend any of them. Oh, they're all over the internet, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> they can be found. All right. Well, the, f- the first book uh, that I wrote and then revised it a couple times uh, is What Are Schools For?, Holistic Education in American Culture, and I think that gave a good overview of uh, here's what we're talking about. Here's what uh, here's where holistic education comes from. Here's uh, what it has looked like in practice uh, in many ways. Um, here are some of the historical and philosophical um, context for it. So, so I, I I still like that book of all of them. That was the first one I read, and and I found it r- really uh, moving, and and it gave me a sense of substance. It gave me a sense of I'm I, there are I am rooted in something that is important, and other uh, very important people have taken a good solid look at. Yeah, that's that is what uh, what I intended there. It it does not uh, give people advice about how to uh, start their own schools or. Or, or apply the ideas in their own lives. Uh, I, I've never written very much about that. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a historian and a, and a philosopher. Yes, and a seed, a seed, a seeder, a, a person who has planted many seeds in many people. And 
I know even in my work as well, you just <laughs> you just don't know which way those things start growing and yeah. and moving forward. So we just again tremendous appreciation for all you've done. So is there any other would you like to anything else you want to leave our listeners with, Ron? Mm, well, I I would just uh, again uh, want to express appreciation to people who are still doing this work and who are uh, caring for young people and and challenging cultural assumptions that that limit human potentials. Uh, anyone who's doing that work in whatever way, uh, I I support that and I, I encourage you to keep going. Thanks. And is there anything that, anything else you just want to say for the podcast? That, Ron, is there any question I didn't ask or anything that was on your mind that we didn't get to cover? No, I, I didn't really come in with an agenda. I'm, um, I, was, I was just ready to answer whatever you ask. So, um, no, that's, that seems good. Thank you for thank you for walking me through it and, and, and yeah, and for inviting me. Oh, are you kidding? I'm so happy. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkable educators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young. And our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.